do take a seat. And we're going to come to God's Word now. So if you've got a Bible, uh, paper version, or on your phone, uh, you can turn to it, scroll to it. Um, we're going to look, uh, we'll be carrying our series in Matthew, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, so do head that way. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 10 to 16. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray for Phil before he comes and shares God's word with us. Heavenly Father, thank you, Phil. Thank you for the preparation he's put in. Thank you for, Lord, your word. Lord, please help us in our understanding. And please help Phil as he explains it to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, James. Well, I wonder if you have ever had the experience of standing out because different. A few years ago, a friend of ours told of how a local cinema was doing a run of sing-along movie nights back in the days when cinemas happened. The highlight of those evenings came at the interval when all those who'd come dressed up as a character from the film would parade around the cinema and the best-dressed person would get a box of chocolates. Our friend went to the Sound of Music night and thoroughly enjoyed being part of the interval parade of nuns and German soldiers and von Trapp children wearing curtains. But the comical winner of the evening uh, went to a lady dressed as Mary Poppins who turned, out, uh, turned up on the wrong night. Thankfully, the fun in the atmosphere, uh, fun and the atmosphere in the cinema meant that it was okay to stand out for being different. But I'm sure we've had experiences when standing out as different is not a pleasant experience. What about those times when it's because of your faith in God that you stand out? Like at work, when in an unguarded moment you tell your colleagues about the church, week, church weekend away. What about those times at a party when you've been the one who stays sober? Or at school when you have to say to someone, you can't go out with them because they're a Christian. Uh, because you're a Christian, rather, sorry. These are the times when the rubber hits the road as a Christian. And they happen because they're the moments when the difference between belonging to Jesus' kingdom and belonging to the kingdom of the world is most obvious. So, so our passage, in, in our passage this morning, Jesus addresses the Christian's relationship with the world. And he wants his disciples to see that those who belong to the kingdom of God will stand out as different. 
And it's hard because by nature, we want to fit in. We want to be part of the crowd. We don't like feeling as though we're different. And one of the reasons for that is because we struggle to realize the realness and power and might and fullness of Jesus' kingdom at work in this world. We feel uncomfortable for standing out because we just see what's in front of us. We just see the person who's going to mock us and the difference between us and the world, and it feels so big. So the issue in these verses is perspective. The issue is how we see the two kingdoms that we live in, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus here wants us to Open our eyes to see him for who he really is, the mighty king of the universe working in power, authority, and, and, and love vibrantly, growing his kingdom in us and through us. And he wants his disciples, you and me, the disciples sat around his feet, to, to be confident. Because when these worlds collide, when we stand out for being different, it's because his kingdom is advancing, and we are being used for that purpose. So let's look at this passage this morning, and there are two things, really, I just want to say. The first is that those who belong to God's kingdom will be persecuted. Those who belong to God's kingdom will be persecuted. Look at verse 10 with me. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what Jesus says in this beatitude is quite a shock, isn't it? And on one level, it doesn't seem to make sense. Jesus is saying that you're happy, you're blessed when you're being rejected and suffering. It doesn't seem to make sense, doesn't it? But it's not just everyday suffering that Jesus' disciples, uh, that he's talking about here. It's persecution as a direct result of righteousness. And it's important to pause and reflect on what Jesus means by persecution because of righteousness. When we get that right, we see how the rest fits into that. So, for example, Jesus is not saying that we will be, we will be blessed for making idiots of ourselves as Christians, or for being a nuisance as Christians, or stirring up trouble as Christians. And neither will we be blessed, or are we blessed, if we're per persecuted for a popular cause, even though it might be a Christian cause, like keeping Sunday special, or the temperance movement, or free speech. They are good causes, but they are not what Jesus is talking about here. So what he is saying when he says, uh, so, so what is he saying when he says, um, those who are persecuted because of righteousness are blessed. That's the question. What is he saying? That, uh, when he says those who are persecuted because of righteousness are blessed. Well, we have to look at what righteousness means. Righteousness means being like Jesus. It means exhibiting characteristics that show we belong to his kingdom. Being like Jesus is understanding our poverty of spirit. It's weeping over sin. It's imitating his hunger and thirst for the presence of God and his righteousness. Being like Jesus is walking in the light of all the Beatitudes gone before and seeking his presence every day. So persecution for the sake of righteousness is not because of some perverse enjoyment of suffering. Instead, the persecuted Christian 
who suffers for the sake of righteousness shows they belong to Jesus and his kingdom. And this is how Jesus explains it in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, says Jesus, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. When you become a Christian, the kingdom of heaven takes root in your heart and you don't belong to the kingdom of the world anymore. And for that, that, for, for that some, sometimes it's instant. For some of us, that belonging is absolutely instant. My best, uh, best man at, at, at my wedding, he, when he became a Christian, he woke up the following morning, blasphemed, and then suddenly, boom, he suddenly realized how awful it was to do that. And he no longer used the name of Jesus as a swear word. It was instant. For others, it's, it's a gradual, gradual, gradual growth. It took me many, many years to fully, fully, fully comprehend grace. It was, you know, in, into my 20s that I really kind of, the grace of God hit me and my, my heart completely changed. But however the kingdom grows, there's a, an allegiance, a change in allegiance that takes place. So becoming a Christian is a bit like living as a foreigner in a country. Do you know, as a foreigner in a country, people point out your differences all the time. The way you speak, the color of your skin, the way you do things differently, the way you laugh at things that they don't find funny. There's also a gentle pressure to fit in, a subtle push to do things like everybody else and not to stand out. Sometimes, on another level, there's persecution. You know, I lived in apartheid South Africa for many years. And often foreigners were called kafabrur, an Afrikaans word meaning black brother. And it was a, 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 an offensive name given to white people who opposed South, uh, apartheid. Many foreigners under the apartheid era of South Africa had to leave or face imprisonment because of their ways, because of the way their views on apartheid stood out. And in the same way, Christians don't belong to the kingdom of the world, so we will stand out as different. And it means at times we will suffer for the sake of righteousness, for being different, for being like Jesus. There will be a persistent pressure to fit in. For many of us, there will be that level of being exposed as different, of having different values. For some of us, there will even be persecution, that aggression towards us because we belong to Jesus. A few years ago, I remember uh, at my youngest son's sixth, sixth birthday party, one of his friends couldn't come along because his parents didn't want him going to a church building where the party was being held. At school, at work, Christians are increasingly marginalized, not necessarily in an obvious way. We might be jokingly branded fundamentalists or seriously called bigots or homophobes or hypocrites. Young people, there's a good chance that being a Christian might cost you a place at the university you want to go to. My best man was told by one of his tutors that he had a brilliant brain but he needed to ditch his second-class theology if he wanted a first-class degree. That's how our world treats those who are in Jesus' kingdom. 
And Jesus says we're blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. It's a badge of belonging to Jesus' kingdom. And you might be wondering, well, how do you cope? How do we live in this world? How do we avoid unnecessary persecution? Firstly, there's there's some practical advice that Jesus models in the Gospels. Often when you see Jesus opposed or confronted in the Gospels, he replies with a question. It's a good response because sometimes those who oppose us don't want to hear what we have to say. They just want an argument. They want to expose those differences we have. So a question often gives time to think. It creates a chance for a reasonable discussion rather than a hostile exchange of views. A good question to start with is, what do you mean by that? Do you know, we're often called homophobes. What does that mean? What does that mean? Ask the question. What's the assumptions behind it? And, and, you know, by asking questions, you can explore these assumptions, often misunderstandings about Christianity or God or even about this world. And it's not perfect, I get that, but it's a start. And, and, you know, experience tells me the longer you ask questions, the longer you explore others' beliefs and, and assumptions about God and Christianity, the more time you will be given later down the line to offer a reasonable ex- explanation for your faith. Ask a question. Jesus does it. But the other way we cope is by reminding ourselves of the great heavenly reward that Jesus has promised all who are in his kingdom. Let me read that last beatitude in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. It's one of the greatest themes running right through the Bible that at the end of the Christian journey, there is a great reward. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Go home and read it for yourself. It's a wonderful chapter in the Bible where the writer lists out great men and women of faith who have won the race, who have kept their eyes above and have received their prize. And there's an obvious difference there between the Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian doesn't think about what happens to us after this life. Because there is no certainty and no conviction about what is out there in the non-Christian's mind. So the non-Christian does not look forward to life after death in the same way as Christians do. The Christian is absolutely certain about what will happen when we die because we have a saviour who has shown us what will happen when we die. He's died and risen from the dead. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, waiting to return to this earth and establish his kingdom here on earth forever. So Christians have an eternal destiny and a reward to think on. And we may not know what this reward is in detail, but we know the greatest part of it is that we will see Jesus as he is. Can we just for a second dwell on that moment? One day we will see Jesus as he is. And we will have years and years and years to sit there and, and look at him and love him 
That will be our privilege when we die. When he returns in glory and establishes his kingdom on earth, our bodies will be changed and glorified. There will be no sickness, no disease, no face masks, no misted up glasses. There will be no sorrow, no weeping, no tears. Everything will be perpetual glory forever and ever. There will be no wars. There will be no rumors of wars, no separation, no unhappiness. Our lives will be filled with inexpressible joy. We will be transformed from glory into glory, and we will be pure and finally at peace. There is the reward in all its glory. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. My brothers and sisters, at that moment of feeling different, fill your mind with that thought of seeing Jesus face to face. That reward. How do we cope we fill our minds with the future glory of the kingdom of heaven. There is our greatest, greatest pleasure in belonging to Jesus' kingdom. And that's how he ends his Beatitudes, with that reminder of where this is all heading, that reward in heaven, Jesus. But then he moves on to encourage his disciples to live out his kingdom daily. And that's the second point here. Jesus calls, out, calls us uh, to stand out. Jesus calls us to stand out. Look with me at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt in the ancient world was primarily used as a preservative, something that prevented the decay of meat and foodstuffs. And most commentators agree that Jesus was using the work of salt against food becoming rotten as an illustration of the work of the church against the, sin of, uh, against the decay of sin. So it's that, 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 that's the key, the key aspect here, that work of salt against uh, food becoming rotten. And he parallels that to the work of the church against the decay of sin in this world. And when you look throughout history, uh, it, it, particularly the last through 2,000 years of Christian history, well, Christianity has been salt in the world, acting as a preserving agent against the decaying work of sin. For example, the very early church shamed the Roman culture by looking after the poor, by living out faithful marriages, by opposing exploitation, salt in the world. In this country, the reason Britain didn't have a revolution like the one in France was because of the growth of evangelicalism throughout the whole of the 18th century, particularly the lack of latter half. It was Christians in the 19th century who opposed slavery, who fought the rights for, for the poor. And what about the impact of the 1904 revival in the coal mines of Wales? Do you know, when the Welsh revival happened, even the donkeys in the coal mines figured it out. They knew something was different. Why? Because their owners didn't swear and curse at them, so they didn't know what to do. The donkeys worked out that there was a difference in their owners. 
because their owners no longer swore at them. The donkeys had no idea what to do. That's the difference. Even the donkeys worked it out in the, 20, in the 1904 revival in the coal mines. And what can we say also about the work of Billy Graham's preaching throughout the second half of the 20th century? And do you know what? Behind all these prominent examples of Christians being salt in the world has been the impact of countless of individual Christians like you and me at work at home at school, flavoring the world with the great kingdom of God in our hearts. And let me be honest, none of us will feel like we're doing much for the kingdom of God. But let me also encourage you with the fact that the non-Christian is watching you. Isn't that great? I'll never forget the day when one of the teachers at my school stood up in an assembly and said that he had become a Christian because of the witness of the Christian students in the school. It was a surprise because no one thought they'd been a good witness. That's the truth of it. But he'd seen the kingdom of God at work in those students and seen the salt that they were in the world. So we might not feel as though we're doing much for the kingdom of God, but in living out God's kingdom in us, Jesus' encouragement here is that all who belong to his kingdom will stand out and prevent the rotting work of sin in this world. So live it. We go back to the very beginning. Live it. You are the salt of the world. And then look at verse 14 to 16. Jesus makes the same point. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When you look at the original Greek, the emphasis is on the word you. You are the light of the world. In doing so, there's an opposite statement about the world. If the disciples are the light of the world, then it must be that this world is full of darkness. And in the Bible, darkness is always a representative picture of the judgment for sin and deep ignorance of God. Whenever you see a darkness fall in the Bible, at Exodus, one of the the plagues was a plague of darkness. Judgment for sin, deep ignorance of God. At the cross, when darkness falls, there's this great declaration, judgment is falling on the Son of God for the ignorance of God in the world. There is the great picture of darkness. And Jesus says this world is in total, total darkness. And notice, too, that he doesn't say, there are many other lights in the world, be like them. Neither does he say, there are other, worlds in, uh, other lights in the world, but you're the brightest, they're there, run along. No, the emphasis is on you. You, you, you are the light of the world. The only way that the world will know God and receive his forgiveness is by seeing that light. There is no other light. There is no other revelation of the glory of God. There is no other thing other than individual Christians living out the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that amazing? And here's the stunningness of the statement. This is not what, this is not what Jesus wants us to be. This is not what Jesus wants us to be. As though he's saying, now, listen, try hard at this. Be good and run along. No, he's saying this. 
the true believer is light in the world. Isn't that stunning? In other words, Jesus says, I don't really, really mind how you feel. If you belong to my kingdom, you are light. If you love Jesus, you are light. Whether you like it or not, you do. That's just a characteristic of who you are. That's just how you relate to the world. It's just you. Why? Because he's in you. He's guiding your character. He's shaping your life. He's molding you to be more like him. You belong to his kingdom. You will shine. You will reveal the glory of God to this world. That is the way God has chosen to reveal himself to this dark world. Oh, God could simply just, boom, land here and everywhere around the world personally and gloriously into the lives and minds of everybody, all seven billion of us on this planet, but he has chosen the light of the world, you and me, his children, to be light in this dark place. That's his miraculous and mysterious way. But you know, Jesus also makes the point negatively in these verses, and that's important because it's easy to believe that we belong to the kingdom of God, but really we're doing God our own way. So Jesus' caution is simply this. If you're ashamed of him and his kingdom, then you've misunderstood these beatitudes, and you cannot be salt and light in this world. You've misunderstood poverty of spirit. You've misunderstood mourning at sin. You've misunderstood forgiving because you have been forgiven. You've misunderstood hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You've misunderstood all that Jesus has said about his kingdom. And, and, and when you think about all that Jesus has said in these opening verses on the Sermon on the Mount, it's ridiculous to claim to be a Christian and yet try to hide it. Christians who are ashamed to belong to Jesus are living a lie and are as useless as salt that has lost its saltiness, as useless as a hidden lamp, as useless as a light left on in an attic. The true believer is light, is salt. You cannot be a Christian and be ashamed of Jesus. It's just the truth. You know, the final observation is simply this. So often after an encounter with Jesus in the Gospels, the Gospel writers record that the response of unbelieving onlookers is to praise God because of him. It happens all the time. Jesus does a miracle. Bang! Everyone is amazed and they praise God. When Jesus teaches, bang! Everybody's astounded and they praise God. It happens in Acts as well. When unbelievers see the true Christian in this world, they see God at work and they praise him. And if you've been following through the, 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 the flow of these verses, I imagine you've noticed an obvious tension. Because on the one hand, the last two Beatitudes have said that the world will, the world will react negatively to the work of God's kingdom in God's people. And yet in that last sentence, Jesus has promised that our shine in the darkness and the world will glorify God for it. How do they work? Well, the answer is I don't know. But they do. (laughs) It's a truth that when the church is facing the biggest persecution, the church grows the most. In other words, the darker the world, the brighter the light shines. So my prayer is this as we finish. My prayer is that God might reveal his kingdom in our hearts more and more. 
that we might echo what Jesus prays in the next, cha- in the next chapter, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is done in heaven. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God's kingdom would come into our hearts more and more, that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness and be filled, that we would show mercy and forgiveness because we have been shown mercy and been forgiven by God himself. I pray that we would see the seriousness of the darkness around us and see that the only hope our world has of ever seeing God is where individual Christians like us are so like Jesus himself that all who come into contact with us will see our good deeds and praise our Heavenly Father. And we may think that an impossibility, but Christians thought that in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century. But you know, the light shone. The light shone. In people like you and me, bog-standard coal miners, in bog-standard coal miners, the light shone. May God grant that we would see a similar revival, even in these days.